I'm chapter 6, verse 3 only tonight. It's just too much to be able to get any more. But as you know, the first three chapters um, were personal to Hosea, who was commanded to marry Gomer, a temple prostitute. Um, she went out and committed adultery on him and the children, and it's all parallel to the relationship of the nation of Israel um, to her unfaithfulness to God. It is amazing to me how many um, commentators spiritualize or allegorize the first three chapters and say that she was not a prostitute when it clearly declares it so. It's amazing to me. But from chapter 4 to the end, as you know, now comes a prophetical. As um, God takes Hosea and directs himself directly to the northern kingdom, who is the very heart of the message in their unfaithfulness to the Lord. It's a picture of a marriage parallel to Gomer. It's very clear. You must interpret the unfaithfulness of Israel alongside the unfaithfulness of Gomer to Hosea. And so in chapter 4, as we covered completely and in depth this morning, and we're not going to go as long or whatever. If you weren't here, I encourage you to get it. It's the indictments of God against um, Israel. And in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, uh, we have the nation that's confronted um, with her sin. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I certainly... When I was in the world or even in the world, I don't like to be confronted with sin. Because the first thing I want to do is justify myself and excuse myself or point fingers. Or worse yet, say, who are you to confront me? That's our flesh. That's, that comes natural. It's only as we walk in the Spirit and we humble ourselves before the Lord that we are broken and able to be confronted and able to admit our fault or failure and ask forgiveness and pray to God to forgive us and allow Him to do a work in our hearts. If we don't do that, then we remain just as we are and our hearts become hard. Our hearts become resentful. Our hearts become hardened like stone. And so here the Lord says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. This is the nation completely. The word of the Lord is the authoritative word as the prophet is being used as a vessel to speak to the nation. God is the author throughout the Bible. We can argue about who wrote this book. The Holy Spirit wrote the whole book, the whole Bible. He used different pens. That's all. The charge there is a court term. This is the legal courtroom up in heaven. This is not earth. In earth you can play games and in earth you can uh, hire a lawyer if you have enough money to win, even if you're guilty. But in heaven there is absolute justice, absolute evidence, absolute truth. There is no games being played. Whether you agree with the dictates, the, uh, the indictments or the verdicts of heaven, it makes no difference. They stand true. For they come from the throne of grace, from the throne of God. 
And so, the command to give word to the Lord. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Truth speaking, again, about the um, integrity, the steadfast, the faithfulness. The nation is all corrupt. The society, as we'll go on and see, is just full of sin. Mercy, hesed, that covenant word again, loving kindness is a good translation. He uses it over and over in chapter 6, verse 6, 10, 12, 12, 6. It's a covenant word. They receive mercy from God. Grace is what we don't deserve. Mercy is less than we deserve. Law is what we deserve. And because we have been recipients of grace, what we don't deserve, and we receive mercy less than we deserve, we should be the most gracious and merciful people to others. Right? But it's, it's much easier and much beneficial to receive than to give, right? <laughs> that, that's, that's the sinful nature. That's, that's me. That's you. So I have to acknowledge what I have received. And the debt that I owe, not to any person, but to God. Lest I be that person in that parable that owed pennies and, and, I mean, the guy that owed millions and the master forgave him. And then he had that co-worker that owed him pennies and he grabbed him and threw him in jail. And then somebody else saw him and reported him to the master who said, and he recalled him and said, listen, how much did I forgive you? Everything. He says, you evil servants, should not you have forgiven him? Now that parable is, is there for Xavier Reeves. Write your name over that parable. That's the way you and I will respond every time until I remember the grace and the mercy that God has bestowed upon me for 42 years. Wow. No knowledge of God. No discernment, understanding, spiritually speaking here. When you have that knowledge and understanding, then what's manifested is integrity, stability, and mercy. They come forth from knowledge. That's why we study the Word of God. That's why we come and let the Word speak to us so it convicts us, it transforms us, it, 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 it does the work that it's supposed to. Verse 2, he gives some of the sins now that are going on by, um, um, by swearing and lying, killing and stealing, committing adultery. They break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. So uh, here many commandments are being broken. Swearing is the third commandment. False oaths, lying, speaking deceptive words, breaking the fifth, um, ninth commandment, killing people, murdering the sixth commandment. Just... Um, one after the other. Stealing. Taking what doesn't belong to us. The eighth commandment. Adultery. The seventh commandment. Sex with a man's wife or husband. All these sins are prevalent in our society. All these sins are prevalent in the church of Jesus Christ today. There may be some of you here this evening that you're sitting here, but you slept with your girlfriend or boyfriend last night. And here you are, you're sitting. 
You got drunk, got loaded. But you still call yourself a Christian. So you, you have to deal with God, not with us. But the Word of God is very, very clear. That when we are Christians, we are new creatures. We, we don't live the way we used to. We understand that. You can fail. You can have a time of weakness or something. But that's the exception. You don't live there. Today, I think there's too much permissiveness with, with grace. It's sloppy agape. You know? Everything's covered. Uh, how would you feel if your son or daughter pushed that philosophy on you as they live with you? <laughs> you wouldn't tolerate it. You wouldn't tolerate it at all. Listen to counseling Christian radio. <laughs> it's so permissive. It's so watered down. The world just laughs at us. They break all restraint, blush it upon blush. It. In other words, there is no ability or desire to even curtail or to stop. They just go like a like a, a like water from a dam, just destructive. A plague, a disease. Even if they have to take somebody's life, they don't care. I'm gonna get my pound of meat, right? That's what it's about. And yet bloodshed contaminates and pollutes the land. Therefore, God said to Noah, when somebody kills somebody, you kill that person. Genesis 9, 5, 6. The book of Numbers 35, 33, 34, it says you, you cleanse the land. You put that person to death. Now, since we don't do that today because we think we're more loving, more compassionate than God, our land is polluted. Simple. But we think we know better than God. Sin affects everybody, people and the environment. Look at verse 3. Therefore, the land will mourn and everyone who, deals, who dwells there um, will waste away. And the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and even the fish of the sea will be taken away. So when God brings judgment, this is not just natural things. This is judgment from God. He affects the animal kingdom. He brings droughts. He brings famine, right? Which he gave us the animal. Now, if you're one of these tree huggers, he gave us the animals to kill them so we can eat them and we can dress each other. Not to abuse them. God allows them to have many, many critters so that there's plenty of balances, okay? When fishes have fish, they have a whole bunch of them. Every species, it's a food chain. You don't just kill to kill, you kill to eat. You kill the dress. But when people are living in sin apart from God, he removes those benefits through drought, through famine, through pestilence, through natural disasters at times. Because he's on the throne, right? Verse 4 on down to 10, the priests are confronted with their sins. Verse 4 says, Now let no man contend or rebuke another. For your people are like those who contend with the priests. So in other words, you can't blame anybody else. You can't, don't even confront anybody else because both priests and people, they're just as guilty. Now he's focused on the priests here. In verse 4. Therefore, you shall stumble in the day 
the prophet, also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. What the heck does that mean? Stumble in the day, the prophet at night. It means these people who are supposed to be spiritual leaders. They're sinful and false. And day and night means the calamities that I'm going to bring upon you, you're not going to escape. They're going to be continuous. Remember the kingdom divided through Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. We're hundreds of years down the road. We were Jeroboam the second, 50 years of prosperity. And when you're being prosperous and when you're being blessed, what do you say? Oh, God must love me. I must be doing something right. But their sin had blinded them. The sin would tell them they're doing something wrong. But their prosperity interpreted that they were doing right. And they were wrong. God's judgment was coming. And so God sent prophets. God sent judgments. This is the time of Elijah, Elisha, the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. Ahaz, Jezebel. All of the things that are going on, but they don't pay attention. They don't repent. Wow. I will destroy your mother, the nation, the northern kingdom, kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes. Whose head is Ephraim? 37 times in the book. Verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being priests for me because you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. And so here's the reason. They're, They're destroyed for the lack of knowledge, the word of God. They rejected knowledge, the word of God. Oh, the Bible, it's archaic, it's old. Are you kidding me? You're one of those Neanderthals. You, you, you're crazy. We got science. We got technology. When the information age, come on. Wow. You have rejected knowledge, I'll reject you. You have forgotten the law of God. I will forget your children. Wow. Why? Is God going to punish my children for my sin? No. It's just that when I'm evil, my children are going to be evil. Because I'm the example. Now, if I'm evil and my son repents, God's not going to punish him. Read Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 33. God doesn't punish the child for the father or the father for the child. Each person is responsible to God. But the chain of command and the chain of contamination, generation after generation, is that the children get worse the next generation because they learn faster and sin progresses. Unless there's a break in that life of sin, then you will turn out the next generation of sinners. And they get greater and better sinners and smarter sinners the next generation. Especially with technology today. Technology is great, but man... How it's been used for evil is incredible. Destructive. You want to just take human trafficking? On the internet? Pornography? And we think we're so smart. Wow.
Look at verse 7. 7 to 10, the priests increase their sin against God. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. So he sent prophets to kill them. The more they increase, the more children they have. They just turn out new sinners, better sinners. I'm going to change their glory into shame. He allows them to reap the consequences. Sin seems to be fun when you're young and when you're, you don't know enough and it's the first and the second and, and at first and all this and that and, and you're just single and it's all about yourself and you're the only one and you're the master of your ship. It's not until you get married and now you have responsibility that you go, oh, shoot. All of a sudden, everything changes. Reality hits you. Right in the face, right? Wow. And he changes their glory, their glory about their evilness, their savviness into shame. They eat up the sins of my people. They set their hearts on their iniquity. In other words, the, the priest, the, the, the focus is still the priest here. These priests, they have children, they're just as bad and not worse than them. And now they, they, they eat up the sin of my people. They love my people to come. They offer sacrifices here in the north. And since they commit so many sins, they, they offer a lot of sacrifices. So the priests love it because that means more meat for them. They benefit from the sacrifices. So they're not going to say nothing against the sin. They're evil themselves anyway. They set their hearts on their iniquity. Therefore, he says in 9, and it shall be like people, like priests. Ooh. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. God is patient. God is loving. But when God draws a line and God will draw a line, God is not like Obama. When he draws a line and you cross it, you're a dead man. Absolute dead. Judgment will come. And you will never be able to blame God that he was too quick to act, that he was unjust, that he didn't warn you enough times. He will judge. Verse 10 says, For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase. Notice they'll eat, but not enough. So in other words, the harvest is cut back. Could be drought. Could be pestilence. They commit adultery, but they don't increase. Their children die. God brings judgment. David committed adultery. Got Bathsheba pregnant, right? What happened to the child? God took him home. Well, that's not fair. You don't have to worry about the child. He's with God. He's better off there than here. Trust me. <laughs> he never got a chance to live this life here. He's a lot better off. <laughs> you don't have to worry about infants. If God was just and merciful to you, a creep, 
a rotten sinner. Are you going to be worried about God dealing with an infant? Let's get serious. (laughs) No way. And so in verse 11 down to 19, the people... uh, Corruption and sin is is brought to attention here. And again, um, the priests were the ones who were supposed to be teaching the word, the ones who were to be confronting the people, but none of that's happening. Verse 11, he says, Harlotry wine and new wine uh, enslaves the heart. So here the people are seeped in the influence of drunkenness. In verse 11, The heart is uh, who you really are, the intellect, the emotion, and the will. Drugs, alcohol, sex, those three things will destroy you. Absolutely. One is connected to the other. When you have harlotry, idolatry here, you have idols. Idols and fornication are always tied together. Read the book of Corinthians. Always together. A young girl... Idolize the guy, she gives herself to him. She throws away her purity because she thinks that he's worth it. Or she doesn't value her own purity, one of the two. But they're tied together. Wine here in verse 11. Drunkenness. And yet you have such permissiveness today in the quote-quote Christian church of the emergent movement. Now, they don't call themselves emergent. They just call themselves the postmodern church. <laughs> they think they're intellectual. Why, why would you want to drink as a Christian? Is my question to you. That's what you did in the world. Go on the internet. Punch in. How many deaths per year in the U.S. by alcohol? They'll give you many. They're about 75,000 a year. 80,000. We only, we lost 58,000 men in Vietnam in all the years. One year, 75,000. You know how many Boeing 707s that is per month? Who's picketing Miller Beer Brewery over there? Or Johnny Walker Red? Or Black? (laughs) Or Sweet Comfort? Or Popoff? Smirnoff? See, I still remember all those things. If you're a sipping saint, I would caution you. It'll destroy your life, and if not, the life of your children. Because if you think you're free to take your little beer, your little wine in private, when your children get old enough and they're starting to drink, and you say, don't do that, what authority do you have? Or shit that they go out and kill somebody or kill themselves because you thought you had the freedom. Why? I ask you why. Hmm. Verse 12, my people ask counsel from their wooden idols and their staff inform them. For the spirit of, our heart of harlotry has caused them to stray and they have played the harlot against their Lord. So again, spiritual adultery is tied with, with the wine, drunkenness, sexual rights of these uh, uh, um, um, temple prostitutes of, of, of the cult here. Um, 
the occult is tied to this. The demons behind it. The, um, uh, the wooden idols. They, they, and, and Paul says that behind idols are demons. Um, today the emergent church uh, teaches the contemplative prayer uh, of the third uh, and fourth century fathers, which is nothing but emptying your mind and, and tapping into demons. It's crazy. Yeah, a lot of yoga, a lot of stuff like that that's in the Christian community. A lot of the pop psychology books, they're, they're nothing but um, uh, new age, uh, um, demonic doctrines. The Jesus Calling, one of the books, the latest books, piece of trash, demonic, by Sarah Young. But Christians think this is the greatest thing on earth. No discernment, nothing. Notice that they get responded. They ask the staff and um, the wooden idol and the staff informs them. They're real demons. There's people that are quacks and there are people that are real. You get power from God or power from Satan. You get a direction from Satan or you get direction from God. There's false people and there's real people. The money that is put out in terms of all this uh, big term, I'm spiritual. People don't want to say, well, I'm not a Christian. They don't say, I'm a Christian. They don't want to say, I'm religious. They say, well, I'm just spiritual. So it doesn't matter what, whether you're in the, I'm spiritual. So you're, 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 you're thought highly. Because every black and white thing has been made gray. And if you make a judgment on what's right or wrong or evil or good, then you're a bigot. You're a hypocrite. Really? You tell that to that person next time they have to make a judgment on a green or red light. And they stop on the red light and say, you hypocrite, why don't you go? Oh, but that's different, huh? Very selective. Notice, they have played the harlot against their God, end of 12. Verse 13, they offer sacrifice on the mountaintops, they burn incense on the hills, their oaks, their poplars, their, uh, and the teraphims, these huge trees, because their shade is good, and therefore your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. So they would seek out these um, locations uh, where they would have the groves, the ashrams. And um, it's an arid place. It's hot, not much water. So you find a cool place under these oak trees and the other trees. And, and they're high above. Everything is closer to heaven. So here's where you have all the uh, sexual rice and the lascivious conducts of all these uh, uh, fertility um, religions. That were in the land, God says, when you enter in, you destroy them. You don't look into how they worship nothing else. You wipe them out. But they didn't. They compromised. Those fertility gods were to ensure that you would have a fertile land, have great harvest. But God is saying, I pull the harvest back on you now. Even though I was warning you for all these years, you, you didn't do it. But now I'm going to pull back. You see, when people are in sin and God's still blessing, it's presumptuous to think, well, I'm the exception. I'm so important to God, he just doesn't really care about me. Really? 
Wow. You're the hottest thing since ice cream, huh? Okay. Hmm. And so here are the locations of their fertility goddesses here. Verse 14 says, I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifice with the ritual harlots. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. Now, he just mentioned the brides and the daughters in the previous verse. In other words, the the men go off to, to go worship these gods with these temple prostitutes, these harlots in the high places, and the, and the women, the daughters and the wives are led home, and the brides, the daughter-in-laws, and they say, hey, the guys are out. Let's go party. Let's go to the fertility gods on this side. Marriage, loyalty, faithfulness, no big deal. Now, all of this began to be introduced in a very public arena in the mid-60s. Wife swapping. Swingers. And it's progressed today. Nobody gets married. People say, well, divorce rates have come down. Yeah, no one gets married. It's a joke. So figures don't lie, but liars sure can't figure, right? And so God says, you know what? I won't even judge, I won't even judge you. I won't t- I'll just let you to yourself. I'll let your sin correct you. Your sin will destroy you. Wow. Romans 12, you ever read it? He gives them more unclean thoughts, vile affections, reprobate minds, a threefold downward spiral. And judgment comes upon them, the judgment that's due to them for their vile lifestyle, especially homosexuality. That's the bottom rung. Read Romans. That's God's word, not mine. And so, in verse... 15 down to 16, the people of Judah were warned by the evil example of Israel. In 15, he says, though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend, do not come up to Gilgal, nor go out to Beth-Avon. These were all religious places in Gilgal, uh, Elijah, uh, Elisha, Elijah had the school of the prophets there, um, in Second Kings two one and four thirty eight, also Amos talks about it, and um, he deals with all these things. Hosea will deal with also uh, Gilgal in chapter nine verse fifteen and and twelve eleven, and Bethaven is the place of idols, the wicked place, instead of Beth- Bethel, the house of God. Now these were all religious centers at one time, and now they were taken over by the northern kingdom for the evil, idolatrous, corrupt sexual practices. As I said this morning, listen, liberals have never started an orphanage or a hospital or university. They've taken them over. Christians began those things. Atheists and progressive liberals didn't start Boy Scouts. They took it over. As well as the homosexual community. Just the way it is. You see, darkness hates the light because light reveals their sin. They don't like that. That's the way it is. You remember being in the world? You come in later to a party, all the lights are down, you walk in, you tell them, hey, 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 turn that light down. You love darkness. 
When you first walk in the party, it's hard to see everybody. Then after five minutes, my eyes are going, hey, Joe, how are you doing? That's dark. I can understand. I can see everybody. We adapt to darkness. Darkness attracts us. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. God knows it. Nor swear an old saying as the Lord lives. So don't go down there. Judah, he's warning Judah. Judah, don't, don't, don't even go to these places. You have no business there. And don't even offer me an offering there in my name and take a note. I won't honor it. I won't even hear it. You know, there are some places that you as a Christian have nowhere, no business being there. As far as I'm concerned, no Christian has any business in, in Vegas. At all. Unless you have some absolute business you can't get out of and you better be prayed up and you better be read up and you better be just ready to get up. Okay? Just simple. Verse 16, For Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forge like a lamb in open country. So in other words, like a, lamb, like a, a calf stubborn, the, the front legs are stiffened and she goes backwards, rebellious, self-will. So God says, he will let them forge like a lamb in open country. Say, oh, that's nice. See how merciful God is. No, 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 that's judgment. I'll leave her alone in the wilderness. A lamb? She's somebody's lunch then. That's the point. You're going into captivity. I'm done with you. Wow. Verse 17. Ephraim is joined to her idols. Let him alone. Tragic words. When God says, he tells Jeremiah three times, don't pray for the people anymore. You ever read Jeremiah? When God tells you to not pray for somebody anymore, you better cry. You better weep. Because God's done with that person. Until God tells me that, I continue to pray. God's never told me not to pray. But he told Jeremiah. So it is a potential, right? Wow. Join to our idols. One, synchronizing the worship of Yahweh with idols, still calling themselves, yeah, we, we're believers. Let them alone. Here's a vivid picture. They drink, their drink is rebellion. Ah, just like a water, big old 32 ouncer. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. Here's the bottom line. Ready? The wind has wrapped her up in its wings. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. She is so caught up in all her sin and her pleasure. And she's prosperous. And she thinks she's got it wired. And she's so wrapped up in this wind. But what she doesn't see is that she's going to be thrust to the ground and go to the captivity. How many men and women think they've got a wire? Man, they're doing this dishonestly. They're cheating on their wife or their husband. They got one girl, two girls, three, three guys, whatever. And all of a sudden, it just all comes to a screeching halt. Just like driving down the freeway at 100 miles an hour and you have to hit the front windshield at that speed. Well, you're not going to survive. Might have been thrilling going 100 miles an hour. But it's the instant halt that kills you. 
Same thing here. Now, in chapter 5, from verse 1 on down to chapter 3, verse 6, is the next correct division. The ongoing judgment of God against Israel. In chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, Hear, O Israel, O priests, take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For yours is the judgment, because you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. Now, the greater judgment is to those who have the greater responsibility and privilege, right? These are the leaders, the priests. O house of Israel, the nation. O house of the king, the king. Jeroboam at this point, the second. So it's a call to the leadership of the greater judgment upon them. These two groups of leaders have been a snare to the people. Look at the verse. Mizpah is on the east side of the Jordan. Remember, Jacob uh, made an oath with Laban there as he came back, and he caught up with him, right? Mizpah sounds so nice. No, it says, may God watch over you because I can't see you. I don't trust you. (laughs) Think back about that, okay? Tabor was on the east end of the plain of Jezreel, west of the Jordan River. Both of these were the center of Baal worship now. The snare refers to the bird trapping. The way you caught animals or birds or anything was to trap them, to put them in a pit, or to kill them. A snare to trap them. The leaders were trapping the people. They were responsible. They were the ensnareers. When as leaders, they should have been the ones, the free earth <laughs> to free the people. They were ensnaring them, corrupting them. Look at verse 2. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuked them all. So in other words, they had ensnared them so much in this corruption. Now, you remember Ahaz and Jezebel. Um, Jezebel's dad was the king of, uh, of Phoenicia, and, and, and she imported all the uh, Baal worship and brought some prophetess and all that. Fill the land. They were so corrupt that even as it says here, they were involved in slaughter, just killing people. No big deal. It was hard. They didn't care. They went out drinking or whatever, and did somebody didn't like them, they just kill them. No big deal. You remember uh, the vineyard uh, of Naboth. Right? Raise a false accusation? Stone. I want that vineyard. It was Jezebel that did it. Ahaz was a little girl. Two junkyard dogs. One is bad enough. You put both together, watch out. Bad news. The revolters deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. God sent prophet after prophet. What they do? They kill him. He sent Amos. He said, what are you doing here? He said, well, don't talk to me. I'm a fruit picker. I was a sheep reader. I talked to God. He sent me up here. Hmm. Verse 3. I know Ephraim. And Israel is not hidden from me. And now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. Verse 3. On down to 7 it says, Do you not direct their deeds towards turning to their God? For the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. 
So in other words, in verse 3, they knew everything about Ephraim. God knew everything about Ephraim's harvestry and about the defilement of Israel. No one needs to give God any information. Now, sometimes we go to prayer and we tell God about all this stuff, but he knows about it. We're to go to God that he might speak to us. Prayer is not to give him information. Prayer is for us to say, Lord, speak to me. Direct, guide me. Their deeds will not allow them to turn. Their deeds demonstrate they know not God. Because they're so involved in the sin in verse 4 there. Um, they do not direct their deeds towards turning to their God because they're in sin. That's not turning to God. How many times you ask the people, people say, well, you know, I, I've been seeking the Lord for a long time. What did you do last night? Oh, I was sleeping with my girlfriend. Oh, okay. What did you do the night before? I was getting drunk with another guy. Well, what do you mean you're seeking God? Your sins hinder you from seeking God. Right? Sin and God are incompatible. This is what he's saying here. And they do not know the Lord. Everybody says they know the Lord, but the lifestyle will demonstrate whether they know God or not. In verse 5, he says, The pride of Israel testifies to his face. In other words, they're arrogant. So here's the evidence of the pride of Israel in their face. Therefore Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. So in verse 5, the very aspect that they're seeking the Lord or saying they want to seek the Lord and, and yet their sin prevents them shows their arrogance and their pride. And Judah, she's not paying attention. She's going the same way. Now, it's going to be a hundred and some years, 17 years before the first siege. But she's not going to learn. She's going to go right after her sister. Same way. In verse 6, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord. But they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. Here's their presumptuousness. They know they're in sin. They're living in sin. They know the word of God. But they still go off for sacrifice. They go still seek the Lord, right? Wow. That's pretty bold. But yet God has withdrawn from them. It says in verse 6. They'll seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. Look at verse 7. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, and they have begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. They dealt treacherously with the Lord. They're unequally yoked. Now they've married these pagan women. And they're having children by them. Now, often, we, you know, people come and they want to talk to us and they want to get married and they're coming and they say, you know, we want to get married. Sure, you know, so go to the front office and they'll set you up for a counseling appointment and, 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 and they sit down and we say, well, how long have you guys been born again? Oh, about three, four years. Okay. Um, you guys, um, how long have you guys known each other? Oh, about three years also. Um, by the way, you guys living together? Yeah, yeah, we are, but we want to get married. How can you be a Christian three years and still be living together? What, what Bible are you reading? What God are you serving? 
There's such an inconsistency today in everything that you do. Especially within the church. And so, here again, they're getting married and they have children of non-believers. And sometimes people within the church, they walk with God. And then they get unequally yoked. And then they have children with non-believers. And now they're in a bigger mess. Because now their heart and emotions are tied with that child. Now you make it more difficult for God to work. Not because it's difficult for God, but because it's dealing with another rotten heart now. And they got to work together. they got to be broken, right? And it's not always pretty. It just doesn't work. And so what happens today, the church accommodates and lowers the standards of God. And let's, let's just be gracious. Let's not be so legalistic. Really? Wow. When Jesus talked to the woman of Samaria... And she said, well, you know, he's not my husband. Did Jesus say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it? No, she says, you know, Jesus said, I know it, and you've had five husbands. <laughs> and the man you're living is not your husband. He was seeking repentance, acknowledging the sin and turning from it. That's not the church today. Something's definitely wrong. And so, now the new moon shall devour them in their heritage. In other words, judgment is coming any day. It's for sure. As certain as the new moons. And so in verse 8 down to 12, you have the warning to Judah. Now again, like in last chapter, the example now, the warning to Judah. In verse 8, he says, Blow the horns, uh, the ram's horns in Gibeah, the shofar, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Avon. Look behind you, O Benjamin. And so here again, the trumpets were used for war, for celebration, and here again for judgment, the warning. Um, these uh, cities, both um, Gibeah and Ramah, they're on the um, northern border of Benjamin. Benjamin is one of the two tribes of the southern kingdom, Judah. Okay? Cry aloud, Beth-Avon, the place of wickedness, idols. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Perhaps Assyria was already in the land. Now you remember Assyria came and took the northern kingdom captivity in 722, right? It's close to that date now. So they were probably in the land already. And they were going to go on to, to Judah, to Jerusalem. And they did, remember? And God turned them away, sent one angel out in one night and killed 185,000 frontline Assyrian troops. Because God says, I'm not going to let them touch you. But you're going to captivity a hundred some years later. Because you're not paying attention. Whether God gives you 10 years or 20 years or 100 years... If you're going to be lost, what does it matter? He gives you that time to repent. If you don't take that time to repent, you'll be lost. Bottom line. Verse 9. Ephraim 
shall be desolate in the days of rebuke among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. So in other words, the judgment, the captivity is certain. There's no escaping it. The princes of Judah are like those who remove uh, a landmark. I will pour my wrath on them like water. Wow, what a picture. The princes of Judah, the leaders, they're dishonest. They're a bunch of land grabbers. They're a bunch of thugs here. They're thieves. And the, the, the picture of judgment is vivid. It's water. Now, when you think of water, I'll be like water. In other words, when water hits you, it gets you. It's destructive. Every part of you is enveloped in that water, right? None will escape. That's what he's saying here. In verse 11. He says, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because the willing, willingly walked by human precepts. He's warning Judah. Look at Ephraim. Human precepts. Oh, we're so smart and we've got these philosophies and everything else. And they're trusting in their own flesh. Cursed the man that trusts in the armor of flesh, the scriptures tell us. Look at 12. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. What the heck does that mean? Like a moth. God has been judging the northern kingdom for a long, long time, slowly, hoping they turn. They didn't. You know, if you get a moth in your closet, it ruin all your clothes. It'll just keep eating away slowly, but it does it, right? But notice that he also says, that um, he will uh, be like a moth to them, but to Judah like rottenness. It takes a long time for wood to rot, right? So he's going to give Judah 117 or so years before the first captivity from this point of 722. A little longer, right? So God lays it all out here prophetically. In verse 12, he says, Therefore I will be to Ephraim like a moth, and to the house of Judah like rottenness. I'm sorry, verse 13 says, When Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent King Jerob, yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. So in verse 13 and 14, we have the rebellious and stubborn nature of the people of God. Ephraim attempted to gather security and help from Assyria because they were afraid of Egypt in the south. And she went to seek help from her enemy that was going to put her in captivity. What did Netanyahu tell our Congress? Your enemy is not your friend, Iran. Profound words. They want to kill us. And we're making a pact with them? We're going to give them nuclear capability? Wow. You see the parallel between the United States and Israel? If you can't, something's wrong. Absolutely something's wrong. Verse 14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Ooh, notice that. Ephraim is going first, right? 722. A lion? It's big, mature, king of the jungle. 
kills anything. Ephraim, it's good as dead. But Judah, she's got 117 years or so before the first captivity. 606, 596, 586. So God says, I'm a little lion to Judah. But in those 100 years, I'll be a mature lion. And I'll do to her what I did to Ephraim. Wow. (laughs) God is warning. He's given time for individuals to repent. God's merciful. He's gracious. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one will rescue. Wow. The certainty of God's judgment. No one will escape it. Not the north, not the south. And yet, no one will be able to say, God, you were not patient enough. Now, Verse 15 down to verse 3 of chapter 6 is the next section or what they call a pericope, okay? It goes together. Here we have the promise of God to restore Israel in the future. Verse 15 says, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. When they seek God's face earnestly, verse 15 says, this will be in the middle of the tribulation period when Israel will flee to the wilderness in Revelation 12, I believe, verse 6. When they flee to the city of Petra, Isaiah 16. When they will acknowledge and see that the Antichrist is their enemy, not their Messiah, as he declares himself God in the temple that he builds and declares that he must be worshipped And everybody take a mark of the beast on the right hand of their forehead. And they will flee to the wilderness. And he will chase after her. And God will miraculously protect his wife to be restored, Israel. This is the time that verse 15 is talking about. We are gone from here. The church will be removed seven years before the tribulation. This happens in the middle of the tribulation as she flees for the last three and a half years. So the attitude of the remnant is a little different. They're seeking them with all their faith, sincerity. The chapter break is unfortunate because verse 1 and 3 go with chapter 5. They're related to verse 15. Paul speaks about the remnant of Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. God is not through with Israel. The majority of the church believes in replacement theology that the church is Israel and God is through with Israel. It's absolutely wrong biblically. It's the basis of anti-Semitism. And the majority of anti-Semitism is coming from the Christian church today. It's wrong. Have they forgotten Genesis 12, 3? Those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. Have they not read that Israel is the apple of his eye? You try to put your finger in God's eye, you're going to be in trouble. Trust me. Do a history study on the nations, how they treated Israel, what's happened to them in past history. 
It might start with Germany. Then Europe, England. Now the United States. And there are many others. Jesus says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's when you will see me, until you say that. You will not see me henceforth until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Matthew 23, 39. And he goes on to give them all of the discourse in Matthew 24. He's talking to Israel, the Jew. Ezekiel 36, 37 is twofold. First is the, re- is the reuniting of the people to the land, the land the people go together. The other half is the Spirit reviving them in the middle of the tribulation. It's a twofold fulfillment. They're in the land right now. Not all of them. There's still more to come. But the spiritual revival doesn't happen until the middle of the tribulation. That's when it's fulfilled. And God brings them back from Petra. And he sets up the kingdom. That's what he's talking about here. So in verse 1 of chapter 6. Come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. This is Israel in that day when they call upon him. When God tears, he heals. When he tears, it's because of discipline. He brings judgment. God is very clear that he heals. He makes alive. He kills. He does as he wills. Judgment is perfect. Deuteronomy 32. Many other passages. Now, verse 2 says, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that he may live, that we may live in his sight. It's talking about the kingdom. Now often, the two days he will revive us, the third day he will raise us up. And many have gone to... um, the scripture in Second Peter 3 eight, where it says that one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day to the Lord. And they say, see, it's been about 2,000 years in the back in the land. But, but Second Peter's uh, scripture is not a formula for prophetic interpretation. All it's saying is that for God, he lives in eternity. And a day and a thousand years are the same to him. That's all it's saying. I think that what's a better interpretation is that they have gone into two captivities. Assyria and Babylon. And he brought them back. The third one will be to the wilderness. And then he brings them back in the third one. That fits better. Okay? That's when he will bring them in the land with the Spirit poured out upon them. That's when he will set up the kingdom and they will receive all the promises promised to them in the Old Testament. We, the church of the bride, are ruling and reigning with him. The millennial kingdom's for Israel, not for us. Our marriage just happens in heaven. We come down for a thousand-year honeymoon. (laughs) All Gentiles will serve the Jew during the Great Tribulation that do not take the mark of the beast. Wow. What an incredible scripture here. Verse 3 says, Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rains of the earth or to the earth. Read the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them about the millennial kingdom. God will restore the earth. God will bless Israel. They will seek the Lord. He, the wife will be restored. We, the bride, are reigning with him. You don't have to worry about being polygamous. Don't worry about that or being a bigamist. God takes care of all that, okay? <laughs> In terms of him having a wife and we, the bride. 
Don't carry the logic too far. Any logic will, will fall down when you're dealing with spiritual things. But it's very clear here the restoration of Israel in the future. Now, how in the world can you believe that God is through with Israel? How can you believe that we, the church, are Israel? You have to ignore the majority of Scripture and subjectively contort it, distort it, mutilate it, and do violence to it, which the church is doing today, which makes them anti-Semitic in many ways. Because the hate for the Jew is now growing at alarming rates like it was in Europe before World War II. Here in the United States. You don't believe me? Go to one of the universities. And set up a little table and start talking about Israel. Or the Jew. You come back and tell me how long it took before someone cussed at you. Smacked you upside the head or threatened you. But then you go to the same university an hour later and set up a a table for ISIS. And you'll be there all day. And people will applaud you. Public education is a Trojan horse that has destroyed America. Amazing. The scriptures are sure, ladies and gentlemen. Don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever man sows, that shall he also reap. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts and thank you for your goodness and your word, Lord. And we pray that we would not trust in our own flesh, as Jeremiah warns, Lord, but that we would not lean to our own understanding, that we would not trust um, as Israel and uh, Syria or Egypt, but in you, Lord. And so, Lord, in the days that we see upon us, we pray that we would not cower, that we would stand fast looking to you. And so, Lord, I lift every person here to you. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you believe in God, but you've never accepted Christ and you you don't know God. You may believe in God. I don't know what God would believe. But you must believe the God of the Bible, the one who created everything, the one who died for your sins. And you must realize that without coming through Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is upon you. And if you acknowledge that he died in your place and that the God Father's wrath fell upon him for you in your place, and then that allows you to ask him to forgive you your sins and You can be saved through repentance, acknowledging your sin and your need of a Savior. This is what the gospel is. If you see yourself as such, then you can call upon his name right now. This is a prayer of repentance. You make that decision where you're going to spend eternity. God does not make that decision for you. You make it. You choose the woman or the man that you're going to marry. No one can force you to marry them. God does not force you to marry him. You must do it willingly of your own will. So if you want to be born again, here's your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord. 
for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.